Once Joseph's brothers are sent to Egypt by their father in chapter 42, it's what we talked about last week, the story of Joseph it picks up the pace quite a bit. The brothers are sent, remember, because there's a famine in the land, and the word is Egypt has food. So Jacob sends 10 of his boys south in search of much-needed provisions. In fact, the author puts this mission in terms of death and life. Go down there, Jacob says, and get us provisions that we may live and not die. We also learn that Benjamin, Jacob's youngest son and Joseph's only full brother, stays home with his dad because Jacob thought, lest harm befall him, which is Robert Alter's super formal translation. It's also code for Jacob has favorites, and now that Joseph is gone, his only remaining son from his favorite wife, Rachel, is now his favorite son, and Jacob wants to protect him. So the ten brothers, Sands, Benjamin, go down and eventually arrive in Egypt. Joseph, who is the number two in command of the entire Egyptian empire, oversees the food distribution. And when he is confronted by his brothers, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Over the next couple of chapters, the story recounts Joseph's revenge, although that's in scare quotes. It's really more of head games that Joseph is playing with his brothers. First, he accuses them of being spies in the land. In an effort to convince Joseph they aren't, in fact, spies, they tell him about their family. They say, your servants, that's code for us. Your servants, uh, we have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. And it's at this point, I'm sure, that Joseph breaks the fourth wall and kind of gives a, a, a weird look here. Honest, huh? Yeah, okay. They continue, your servants, we, we were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Again, Joseph breaking the fourth wall, thinking, okay, well, joke's on you. I'm actually standing right here, although they don't know that. Joseph imprisons them for three days and then says, okay, here's the deal. One of you will stay here, and the rest of you need to go back home and bring your youngest brother back to me so that I can see him and test your honesty. They begin to speak to one another, and this is actually pretty pretty cool. They say, surely we're being punished because of our brother, because of Joseph. We, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen to him. That's why this distress has come to us. This is because of what we did to Joseph 15 or so years ago. What they don't realize here is Joseph can understand everything that they're saying. Joseph had been using an interpreter to communicate with them, speaking Egyptian to them and having a translator put that uh, into their native Hebrew language. As I was recently told, this is some next-level espionage sort of stuff with Joseph here. He's deep undercover, pretending not to know his own primary language. In the story, Simeon, one of the brothers, is chosen to stay back while the others go home with their provisions to retrieve Benjamin and eventually come back to Joseph. So the other brothers leave, but not before Joseph instructs his attendants to fill their bags with provisions and also to give their money back, the money that they were supposed to use to pay for these provisions. So imagine, you've been accused of spying on the land by the number two leader in a really powerful Egyptian empire. 
and you've been detained for three days in prison, and now you've been sent home while one of your brothers has been left behind in the Egyptian prison. And on the trip, one of you goes to feed the donkeys that are functioning as the beasts of burden in this story, only to find his portion of the money still in his bag. This had to be terrifying. So here we go. Joseph, one, brothers, zero. Unless we're crediting points for the whole selling the favorite son into Egyptian slavery. I don't know how many points that might be awarded, but here, let's just go with it. Joseph, one, brothers, zero. When they get home, they relay this entire story to Jacob, who, remember, is completely uneasy about Benjamin's safety. They tell him the story, and then, together, they find more money in the other nine bags. So, Jacob, for the readers at home here, remember, the dad that these kids have been trying to get to love them for their entire lives. He hears what has happened. He learns that they now have to take Benjamin, his favorite, down to Egypt to please the number two in command of the entire powerful Egyptian empire. And then all of them together see all of the money they were supposed to pay, uh, used to pay for the provisions, still in their bags. And he says, you have deprived me of my children. My, my sons, Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. This is, this is strange because now we don't know if Jacob is really saying Simeon's certainly going to be dead. This will come into play here in a couple minutes, but for right now, Joseph is no more, Simeon's no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. And then he says this to the kids that have been vying for his attention and love their entire life. He says, my son, singular, will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the, quote, only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave. Another way to translate that would be you have, you will bring my gray head down to Sheol, the place of the dead, which at this time, um, Israelites believed that this is where everyone who dies goes, good, bad, and in between. When you die, you go to Sheol. And what Jacob is saying is you are hastening my trip to the underworld and I will go there in sorrow. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. This had to be difficult for these kids who, again, have been begging their dad to love them, to hear, because he's reducing his family line to Joseph and Benjamin. In the next chapter, the author writes, Now the famine was severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, oh, why, don't you, why don't you guys go back and, and buy us a little more food? Which is completely bizarre, right? Because Simeon has been sort of rotting away in an Egyptian prison. Maybe they think that he's dead, but they're not going after him. This whole family is completely crazy. The brothers never uh, look into what happened to Joseph. Now Simeon's there. They basically say, well, he's dead, so let's just sit here and enjoy the provisions that we have. And when they run out, you know, dad will just say, why don't you guys go back and get a little bit more food? This is, this is all very strange, but there's a problem, right, in, in what he's requesting. If it's going to work, Judah says, and reminding his father, we have to go and bring Benjamin 
Now, let's talk about Judah for a second, the one here who is reminding his father Jacob about sending Benjamin. We're first introduced to Judah in the story of Joseph when the brothers have thrown Joseph into a cistern because their oldest brother, the firstborn, Reuben, says, you must not kill him. And when Reuben apparently goes away somewhere, the other brothers see a caravan in the distance of traders who will be going down to Egypt. And Judah says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let's not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. Judah here is attempting to get money for selling his brother Joseph into slavery. Now, it's unclear if Judah is trying to protect his brother from death. Maybe like Reuben, Judah knows that the brothers, when left alone, they will certainly kill him. There are some that maybe are just bloodthirsty because of his stupid coat and the love that their dad has for Joseph, and they just won't be stopped until this favored son is dead. So maybe Judah is trying to protect him by selling him into slavery and making 20 pieces of silver off the entire deal. Maybe. But let's not go too far with this heroic reading of Judah. He still sells his brother into potential death, and he sells this to the other brothers by telling them they can make some money off of the transaction. In other words, Judah abandons his brother for 20 pieces of silver. Judah, in another sense, monetizes his brother's life. In the next chapter, uh, Judah abandons his daughter-in-law. This apparently is a little bit farther down in the the history of his life, but he abandons his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Rather than ensuring that she has an inheritance after the death of her husband, which is Judah's firstborn, he sends her home in shame and disrepute. Now, we've talked about this story a couple of times now, and I would encourage you to go back to listen to those talks if you haven't uh, really dug into what's being said there. Uh, But here, all you need to know is Judah is abandoning his daughter-in-law. He sends her home back to live with her father as, as a failure. He sends her home under the guise of a potential future with his youngest son, who will provide for her later after he is grown, but Judah doesn't really want to do this. It's only after Tamar takes matters into her own hands and tricks Judah into sleeping with her, and it's only after Judah wants to burn Tamar for what he thinks is her immorality, which has resulted in a pregnancy, and it's only after Tamar presents Judah with his staff and his seal as the identifying symbols of the child's father. It's actually children. Uh, Unbeknownst to her, she would have twins here. And then upon seeing these symbols and recognizing that he was the one who was sort of tricked into sleeping with her unbeknownst to him, he says, she's more righteous than I am. Now, with this background of of Judah's story, let's just listen to what he says here. In response to his father's concerns about losing Benjamin, the, the, the youngest son, it's Judah who says, Dad, send Benjamin with me. And and we'll go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. There's a lot riding on this, Dad. I myself will guarantee Benjamin's safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. 
If I don't bring him back to you and, and set him right here, right before you, I will bear the blame before you for the rest of my life. This is Judah, the one who sold his brother for 20 pieces of silver. The one who sold out his daughter-in-law, and when she needed protection, when she needed provision, when she needed an inheritance, he sends her back to her father to live in shame. This is Judah. Jacob finally relents, maybe seeing the life and death reality of their situation. And the ten brothers, now including Benjamin, remember Simeon is in prison, so ten brothers again head south. And when Joseph hears they are approaching and sees them in the distance, he tells the one who was over his house to prepare a meal for them, which is a a weird move. In fact, the brothers thought that going into Joseph's house was, was a trap, that he would kill them for, remember, not paying for the provisions the last time. This is the same guy who thinks that they're spies and they have now made off with a bunch of provisions without paying for them. So right ahead of uh, any of this taking place, they, they plead with the man in charge of Joseph's house saying, this was a mistake. We, we, we paid you. We don't know how this came back to us. It was a mistake. But the person in charge says, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your bags. I, I, I received the silver. And then he brings out Simeon, the brother that they thought may have been dead. And then the brothers prepare a tribute for Joseph's arrival. They're still trying to curry favor with the number two in Egypt. And then Joseph comes out and joins them in his home. And upon seeing his brother Benjamin, he just he starts to lose it. He's, he's moved with emotion. So he leaves for fear of weeping in front of his brothers. I have this weird thing whenever I'm watching a movie that's that's emotional. If if I'm like in a movie theater, <clears throat> remember movie theaters? Oh gosh, they were fun. But if I'm in a movie theater and I, I want to like suppress all of this uh, emotional response to whatever I'm I'm viewing, like I hold it in until I can't hold it in anymore, and then I kind of start to laugh. It's really really bizarre. Uh, but perhaps Joseph is, is in this place of like holding in all of his emotions and not wanting to see anyone. He leaves and then just he loses it, just weeping at the family that is before him and the 15 or so years of distance between them and now seeing his brother for the first time. Remember, he wasn't on that first trip. And when he returns, they all sit down at a meal. Uh, I got to throw this in there because this is strange background information. The author tells us that they serve Joseph at a table by himself and the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who eat with Joseph at a table by, by themselves. And it says the reason of this separation between Joseph and the Egyptians from his Hebrew brothers is because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is detestable to Egyptians. The brothers are seated according to birth order. So you've got Reuben at the head of the table and then all the way down to Benjamin. And the author tells us that as uh, the, the servers come to Benjamin, he was given a portion five times as much as anyone else's, which is weird. And then it concludes, so they feasted and drank freely with him, with Joseph. Another way you could translate that is, and they drank and they got drunk with their brother, which is funny 
And I, I kind of wonder as a 17 year old kid that's been, you know, thrown into Egyptian slavery by his other brothers, if this is not completing like a, a lifelong dream of Joseph just to hang out with his brothers, to, to drink and to, to get drunk with them at a meal. I know, I just put that off to the side there for a moment. But Joseph wasn't done playing mind games, and maybe, in all honesty, the drinking was part of this sort of social lubrication leading up to the more games that Joseph is playing with his brothers. It says that he tells his attendant to load up his brother's bags with as much food as they could carry, and then again to put all of their money back in their bags, and on top of that, to take Joseph's cup and to put it in Benjamin's bag. And after they left, Joseph tells his attendant to, to mount up, you know, to, to take on his best Warren G and Nate dog, to mount up and pursue them. I know that there's like one of you out there that appreciated that very sly Warren G and Nate dog uh, reference. So just be, be blessed by that. But the, the attendant is to go and to pursue them. And when he overtakes them to confront them and accuse them of stealing the cup to which the brothers would say, what? What do you mean? Like, no, of course we didn't do that. It, no, uh, whatever. And the attendant is to say that whoever did this is in for a world of hurt. In fact, the person who takes Joseph's cup will be his slave forever. And of course, despite the protestations of the brothers, the attendant finds this cup. And of course it's in Benjamin's bag because that's where he put it. So in the next scene, they're all standing in front of Joseph in his house, scared of what might befall them. And then Judah, the one who sold his brother for 20 pieces of silver, the one who sold out his daughter-in-law, Judah. Judah says, Joseph, Remember, through, through an interpreter and also not naming Joseph because he doesn't know, but more likely saying, number two, in, in all of Egypt, number two, you, you got to know this. My dad said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons and one of them went away from me. And I said in response to that, he's surely been torn to pieces and, and I've not seen him since, which is a weird way of phrasing that, almost wondering if Jacob thinks that there might be hope that Joseph is still out there. And then he says, if you take this other one from me too, if you take Benjamin from me and harm comes to him, uh, you'll bring my gray head down to Sheol in misery. And, and this is Judah re recounting all this to, to Joseph. So he says, so now if the boy, if, if Benjamin is not with us, number two in all of Egypt, when, when, when I go back to my dad and, and, if, and if my dad, who is so closely bound up with the boy's life, if if he sees that he's not here, he, he's going to die. And we will all bring the gray head of our father down to the grave or to Sheol in, in sorrow. I, in fact, number two, I guaranteed Benjamin's safety to my father. I said, if, if I don't bring him back to you, dad, I will bear the blame before you for my entire life. Now, number two, please, please let me stay here as your slave in place of my brother. And let Benjamin return with the others. I'll take his place. How can I go back to my dad if he's not here with us? I promised him that I would take care of him. I can't do this to him. Don't let me see the misery that would come on my dad 
if I don't make good on this promise to him? This is Judah, the one who sold out his brother for 20 pieces of silver, the one who sold out his his daughter-in-law and sends her back to the house of her father in, in shame. This is Judah, the one who eventually claimed Tamar is more righteous than I am. Judah, the, the one who seemingly, after this moment, turns a corner in his life because he's now willing to sacrifice himself for Benjamin. No longer is he wheeling and dealing, trying to make 20 pieces of silver off of his brother's life. He is, in fact, putting his life in place of his brother's. This is Judah, the one who says, my past, it, it stops. My deceitfulness, it stops. My lack of courage, it it stops. My selfishness, it stops. This is Judah, the the one who now says, take me instead of him. And Joseph, uh, unpacking this. uh, Again, this is not in the story, but imagine Judah attempting to convince his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And remember, they're saying that, that Joseph was pleading with them And now Joseph hearing this brother who at one point 15 or so years ago was was so easily swayed and uh, was even the impetus behind him being sold into Egyptian slavery now advocating for his brother, Joseph completely loses it. For many reasons, I'm sure. He sends all his attendants out out of the space and then he finally reveals himself to his brothers. He, if he's in the movie theater, he can't hold it back any longer and it just, it just, is, is let out his, his weeping, his, his sadness, his, all of his emotions. He forgives his brothers. He even claims that there's some divine involvement in their actions way back when. We'll talk about that uh, in the next sermon on Joseph. He, he eventually moves his entire family down to Egypt in, in a place called Goshen, right outside of, of Egypt. He's reunited with his dad for the first time in 15 or so years. In the last chapters of, of the book of Genesis, there's just this whirlwind of emotion and reconciliation as all of the loose ends of this story are tied together. But let's not miss this. Judah, he's evolved. He's transformed. He's put the past behind him. He's learned from it. He's forgiven himself. He's moved beyond his transgressions, and now he is stepping into a new role. Maybe you need to hear this. That's possible for you, too. Maybe you need to hear this. You're not who you used to be. You're not that person anymore. Maybe you need to hear this. You're not the equivalent of the worst thing you've ever done. That's all in the past. Maybe you need to hear this. There is grace for you right here and right now. Oftentimes when we think about the story of of Joseph, we, we reduce it to the main character and we miss some of the, the, the development that happens within the lives of his brothers or his dad or God that's sort of underlying this entire story. But here, if we focus in on the radical transformation that's taken place in Judah's life, perhaps it can provide us with hope, 
that we're not defined by our past, that we're not bound to what people think of us, that we are not uh, equivalent to the worst thing that we've ever done, that there is grace for us and that there is time for us to become a different version of ourselves. Judah apparently learned some things in the past, and when he says out loud, Tamar is more righteous than me, some of the sins that had gone before him, he seemingly turns a corner because now we have this story uh, more years down the line where he becomes the one who sacrifices himself or is willing to sacrifice himself for the fate of his brother. That's not who he was, but that's who he is. As Christians, we talk a lot about Jesus and, and what um, following Jesus can can mean for us and what the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, the, the change that the Spirit can bring about in us. But I wonder, um, I wonder if we actually believe that. Because the way that we live sometimes, we still are looking over our shoulder to the things that we have done and we're defining ourselves by those things in the rearview mirror. Perhaps as we take some of the focus off of Joseph in this passage, which admittedly, this is, this is beautiful, this, this act of forgiveness and reconciliation that takes place in his life, that's, that's something to, to think through and consider as well. But when we consider Judah, the one who has sort of perpetrated these sins in the past, now becoming a different and better version of himself, I'm wondering if we too might be inspired to consider what we might become through the the power of the Spirit working in our lives, who we might become, who we might advocate for, who we might place uh, above ourselves, who we might sacrifice ourselves for now. Through the grace of Jesus and through the power of His Spirit that is living within us, may we have the boldness to move beyond the things that we have done. May we take risks to put ourselves in a place of advocacy and self-sacrificial love for those in our lives that need it. May we also have the strength to forgive ourselves and recognize that we are not solely defined by who we once were, but through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. We are and we can be who he has called us to be.